The mind by nature is radiant and pure, the Buddha said. It is shining. It is because of visiting forces known as defilements that we suffer. It is because of visiting forces known as defilements that we suffer. Do we believe that? <laughs> if we're open to hearing what the Buddha understood and we listen to what he said, then we would hear this and be interested in these things called defilements because he is saying that whatever suffering you have in your life, whatever suffering you've discovered in your mind today, it's because of some force that's visiting the mind temporarily, causing it. And if we're interested in not suffering, we have to do some uh, investigation to see whether what the Buddha says is true or not. My teacher, Saito Utejaniya, says, it is not you who removes the defilements. Wisdom does the job. And wisdom inclines towards the good, but is not attached to it. It shies away from what is not good, but it has no aversion to it. Wisdom recognizes the difference between skillful and unskillful. Now let's face it, we know that suffering comes in all degrees and so too the defilements. There's a gradient or a spectrum of defilements from the subtlest, hardly recognizable, to the grossest forms manifesting in uh, the tremendous carnage of war that we see on the face of the earth. But the Buddha's medicine for curing the illness of suffering is the Noble Eightfold Path. And the Noble Eightfold Path is essentially three trainings. The training in sila, or purifying our speech and behavior. And when I say purifying, I mean purifying our speech and behavior of the transgressive defilements the defilements that we act out in a way that transgresses others, that causes harm to others. The second training of the Eightfold Path is a training in Samadhi, commonly or usually called concentration, but it refers to the stability of the mind, which when developed purifies the mind of obsessive defilements so that the mind is not obsessing with these defilements. And the third training of the Eightfold Path is the development of wisdom, or panya, wisdom, which purifies our understanding of the latent defilements that have not yet arisen. So the Buddha was very comprehensive in addressing defilements and the suffering they cause. 
so let's look at what these defilements are that cause so much suffering. Now I might uh, make, a, make a note about the use of the word defilement. It has something of an Old Testament feel to it, you know. <laughs> and uh, I choose that word intentionally because I think we're almost too casually tolerant of these forces that cause us to suffer, thinking somehow that it's inevitable. And the Buddha is saying, on the contrary, you do not need to suffer. And so to identify that which causes suffering as a defilement is appropriate. It really is a bad thing. You know, it's, it's a baddie because it causes some degree of, of suffering. And defilement, the word defilement, conveys that sense of, <laughs> it catches your attention. So what are these defilements that cause suffering? Well, in short, they are beliefs, thoughts, assumptions, speech, and actions that are rooted in greed, aversion, or delusion. Well, that's pretty comprehensive. But there's a couple of adjuncts to greed, aversion, and delusion. All the defilements are fueled by restlessness. Restlessness is this kind of restless churning of the mind in thought that we're unaware of. They are also always accompanied by ignorance or delusion. When I say that, I mean that ignorance is of two stripes. There's igno the ignorance of not knowing. When you don't know something or you don't know what's going on, how can you have a right relationship to it? It is our practice of mindfulness that addresses that level of ignorance. It's confusion, dullness, the, the kind of lost in some enchanted story going through the mind that we're all so familiar with. But there's another kind of ignorance or delusion, and it is the delusion of knowing wrongly. It is the task of insight, not just mindfulness, but it's the task of insight to reveal how we're knowing wrongly and how to understand correctly. And this kind of uh, ignorance or delusion shows up in skepticism, perplexity, and mistaken beliefs. I think it was Mark Twain or some other witty writer who said, it's not what we don't know that causes us so much problems. 
It's what we know that just ain't so. <laughs> and they really, it is maybe more subtle and more pervasive that we know things, we understand things wrongly that causes us so much distress. When ignorance or delusion is accompanied by attachment, it manifests in the grossest forms as greed, clinging, ambition, attachment, where we're grasping at things, people, status, recognition, and the very subtle forms of attachment, pride, hanging on to wrong beliefs, longing, excitement, entitlement, expectation. These are forms of attachment in the mind also. When ignorance or delusion is accompanied by aversion, it manifests in three general categories. The grossest form is striking out aversion in the form of rage, hatred, anger, sometimes precipitating violence. But sometimes aversion appears internally in the form of frustration, disappointment, despair, depression, and self-pity. All forms of somehow turning away from, not being willing to, open to, and experience, being averse to some experience. And then there's the pushing away kind of aversion, where out of irritation or impatience or disdain or even out of fear, we push away or back away from experience. So you can see that the defilements covers a lot of, a lot of mind states, a lot, a lot of our behavior, a lot of our thoughts. But we should understand that the defilements are habits, but they're strong habits. And they're so strong and they arise so frequently that, they're, that we take them for granted, we hardly see them, and they have become our personality. Your particular matrix of unseen defilements is in large part the shape of your personality. And when they arise, we identify them as mine, as in, I'm so angry. I'm depressed. It's my state of mind. That's an own, an own thing. When in fact, they really are states of mind that arise due to causes and conditions, most of which are outside of your immediate control. When the defilements arise, it's clear that they make life difficult. They hinder our full uh, enjoyment, you might say, of our human potential. And they certainly hinder our progress in practice. However, the defilements are not wrong. They are part of the Dharma. The Dharma is the way things are. And these defilements arise not accidentally, not because of some adventitious 
unknowable conditions, but they arise due lawfully due to the fulfillment of the causes and conditions that give rise to them. So we could say that they're natural phenomena that are bound to arise when the conditions for their arising are present. They are the object to be known through awareness, and they're the object to be understood by wisdom or insight. George Munford is a, uh, a friend and a colleague of ours. He's the mindfulness trainer for the Chicago Bulls and the LA Lakers under uh, Phil Jackson. Those teams practice mindfulness, which may have something to do with why they win so much. But George says, when you're not mindful, you're giving the defilements free rent in your mind. And we can see that when we're not mindful, they own the house. They're not just visiting. They're not just renting on a long-term lease. They own the place. And, our mind, and we give it up. We give up awareness, freedom, uh, happiness to these defilements. Having identified the defilements, let's be clear about how bad they can be. <laughs> Because, as the Buddha said, it is because of these visitors to the mind that we suffer. But let's be clear. Defilements are mental activity. They're not the body. Defilements arise in the mind. They are unwholesome mental states, but they condition unpleasant effects, both unpleasant physical and unpleasant mental effects. When, for example, the mind is filled with rage, anger, hatred, the body is very agitated, very painful, full of tension, and we can feel it. And that physical discomfort is directly conditioned by the state of mind. The mind that is uh, inflamed or enchanted by any of these defilements feels under attack, stressed, or distressed, reactive, and it feels very disagreeable. It's a very disagreeable feeling when the mind is filled with, or I could say a very unsatisfactory feeling when the mind is filled with any of these defilements. By ignoring them, denying them, minimizing them, pretending that they're not uh, anything to be worried about, they only grow stronger. Defilements act in a couple of ways. In one way, they obscure the object. They hide the experience from us. When delusion is the mind, and we don't know. For example, when the mind is filled with restlessness and your mind jumps on a train of wandering, wandering thoughts, we don't know that. When the train leaves the station, we're not at the station, we're not on the train. We're, we don't know anything. We don't know if it's a pleasant thought or a bad thought. We don't know where the train's going. 
We don't know if we're happy about it or sad or fearful. We don't know anything. Delusion is that powerful that it can hide your life from you. Think about that. I mean, we've all seen that today. And it can go on for four or five seconds, or four or five minutes, and for some people, maybe four or five hours, where you never get off the train. In fact, sometimes people go their whole lives never coming out of the dream that they're imagining, being totally enchanted with what's going on in their mind, and not knowing. It's very, very powerful delusion. It is so powerful that even with our best intention, as, we, as you all have had today, our best intention to notice it, to catch it, to recognize it, it seems to happen with reckless abandon at will, and our intention barely touches it. Defilements can obscure the object, but maybe more often, or equally often, it obscures the nature of the object. This is even subtler, because we see what's going on, but we don't understand what we're seeing. For example, when aversion arises in the mind, whatever it is the mind looks at or takes as an object, it can only see the unpleasant aspects of it because of the aversion in the mind. When desire arises in the mind, whatever object the mind takes a person, a thing, a thought of the future, a memory of the past, whatever the mind takes as an object when desires in the mind, it only sees the pleasant aspect of it. Did you ever wonder why and how the person you fell in love with changed so quickly? <laughs> They, did, they may not have changed one bit. It's your mind that has changed. When the attachment, infatuation, and you know, desire finally cools down and leaves the mind, and there's a possibility of something else arising, the person looks like a different person. It's just that we never saw that side of them because the mind was inflamed with desire. And we see, unfortunately, in parts of the world, whole tribes, whole histories of people whose minds are filled with aversion that cannot see anything of benefit or of value in their neighbor. Not because they aren't, there isn't something to see that we can see, but the aversion in the mind prevents it. This is how powerful aversion and attachment are. They blind us. 
we don't see things clearly. And just with that, we can begin to appreciate the value of this work that we're doing and how challenging it is, how difficult it is to see our own body, our own mind, our own life without attachment reversion. Extraordinary. Defilements enchant the mind, causing the mind or casting a spell of dreamlike images in the mind. It is a living, breathing, long-running hallucination. And we think it's true. And it's what entangles the mind in all of its suffering. Mindfulness is like a searchlight casting for faults in the clouds of delusion. Mindfulness is just looking at the events of life, trying to see through the layers of delusion, the misunderstanding, the not seeing, the not understanding that we're so enchanted by. If defilements enchant the mind, and awareness or mindfulness removes the defilements, that must mean we have to become disenchanted. Right? Disenchanted. But normally when we think of the experience of disenchantment, it's kind of like a negative. It's kind of like an unpleasant. It's like, oh, too bad you're disenchanted with something. But actually we should understand that disenchantment or becoming disenchanted is becoming real. It's becoming uh, not ignorant, not deluded, not confused. It's coming in touch with the reality, the way things really are. Now, I mentioned that there's a whole spectrum of defilements from the very grossest, manifesting in wars and worse, to the very subtle, the very subtlest little irritation you had today with, you know, some sound in the room or, you know, your neighbor's breathing or something. Because the defilements are a mental experience, they occur in the mind and not in the body. But it is clear, it's obvious, that the state of the mind conditions the experience of the body. You know, you fall in love, and the body is light and energized and porous and transparent, and it's just, whew, you know, hardly on earth. And when you get really angry and really frustrated, the body's so tight and dense and heavy and not pliable and stiff. And we feel that. We can see it a lot easily in our practice here because the body is speaking to us constantly, giving us a reflection of what's going on in the mind. 
So I encourage you to just, even if you did nothing but just monitor the the relaxation or tension in the body, you would know the mind very well. But we should not interpret every physical experience as a mental state. Because things happen, you know, when it's hot out and the body feels really uncomfortable because it's hot. It's nothing to do with the mental state. It's got to do with the weather. Or if you eat too much, and you feel really full and uncomfortable if you eat the wrong thing, well, the body feels really hot and full and uncomfortable. It's got nothing to do with the mental state at that time. Maybe you were glutton at that meal, but at that time, that state can be passed. So we don't want to interpret, try to figure out what mental state this physical symptom sensation is reflecting. But it's just something to keep in mind that sometimes we can see uh, the state of the mind through the experience of tension in the body. I mentioned the first training of the Noble Eightfold Path, the training in sila, or the precepts as we're practicing them here. Because we're paying attention to how we speak and how we act, living according to the precepts, we are watching our intention. It's a mental state. We're watching our intention to see if it is grounded in or rooted in or influenced or inflamed by aversion, in which case we might act or speak uh, abruptly or, or uh, harmfully to someone, to one, to one of us. Or if it's uh, fueled by attachment, we might uh, you know, do whatever we want, not in line with the precepts. So we can see that by practicing mindfulness of intention, we can control or we can exercise some restraint on the acting out of defilements. Because when we act out defilements, for the most part, we don't know that the mind's defiled and we don't care. There's a lot of self-righteousness that comes with, with the defilements. We get angry and we feel justified in being angry. We want something, we feel entitled to what we want. And it's kind of like, not just is it bad, it's like hidden under another layer of another defilement. And so the precepts act as a a gate. You know, when we really make a commitment to the precepts, we have to, to, we, we know that we have to really intentionally go through the gate, break the precepts in order to act out any of the defilements. So it, it serves as a kind of a, uh, an early warning system. If you find yourself about to, to act outside of the precepts, you can be sure, oh, the mind is uh, under the influence or enchanted by one of the defilements. But when we act out, 
any of the defilements, it is of um, greater magnitude of danger. Because when we don't know that something is harmful, and we're just acting it out without any restraint, we're fully energized, we're fully believing it, we're enjoying every minute of it, and we have no second thoughts and no regrets. And we just pile up layer upon layer upon layer of defiled action. So mindfulness, the, the, the task of mindfulness is to, to notice the intention in the practice of sila, is to notice where is this urge to write this note coming from? Where is this urge to go get another piece of dessert coming from? Where is this urge to do anything that is harmful towards another, or oneself or another? But even if we could speak and act very carefully all the time, where we really carefully considered before we did or said anything so that we didn't cause anyone any harm, our minds could still drive us crazy. Because we could be thinking what we want to do, even if we're not doing it. At that point, the defilement is not being acted out, but it's obsessing us. And so we say, oh, this is another level. It's a subtler level of the defilements. It's the obsessive manifestation of the defilements. And the Buddha was really savvy when he realized no amount of restraint of speaking and acting is going to address the obsessing in the mind. You need another practice, something else that's both a stronger practice and a subtler practice, because the defilements are subtler. So when we are obsessively thinking about, you know, some some old ruminating over some old memory where we really got angry about something to someone, and we get caught in it. And sometimes you'll see here on retreat, something comes up from the past, and the intensity of the emotion is stronger than we remember it at the time it actually occurred. Because with mindfulness, as I mentioned the other night, there's no deceiving yourself. There's no, you can't put a spin on it. It's mindfulness sees things as they are. And so when acting out in the past, we might have hidden under all kinds of self-rationalization, self-justifying, all kinds of delusions. We might have hidden from or not felt the impact of really what we were doing, what we were saying, or even what we're thinking. And now, developing a little mindfulness, when that comes into view, we see it, we feel it in all of its rawness, in a way without any filters. And this is good. This is good in the sense that we begin to really see and know for ourselves the pain of the defilements in the mind. And when we just dump them on somebody else, acting and speaking carelessly, it's as if we give them the pain, too. You know what it feels like to have somebody get angry at you? 
or if you don't, come to a retreat and let somebody get angry at you. Then you'll know what it feels like. It's like on retreat, everything, you're so sensitive, get so sensitive to everything. Just the slightest, you know, facial expression can convey more than we allow ourselves to know most of the time. So developing mindfulness of mental states is the antidote to the obsessing of the defilements in the mind. Because when any of the defilements arise in the mind, if we're not aware of them, they're really tormenting. If we are aware of them, at least we're aware of them. And we're, we can work with them. And there's the, at least the beginning of some spaciousness around them. We're not so compulsed or commanded by them. We can begin to, to uh, have a little bit of spaciousness around them, not feeling like we've got to act them out. Nevertheless, mindfulness cannot always banish the defilements, the hindrances. Sometimes they come up, and just as you mentioned this morning, you know, or this afternoon, uh, a mental state comes up, and it just gets, it's just overwhelming. And you just, you can't, no, matter, no amount of mindfulness kind of dampens it, softens it, understands it, puts it aside, and we feel overwhelmed. And unfortunately, this is where a lot of practice takes place. The mindfulness is good enough to see what's really going on, but the wisdom isn't strong enough to let go. And so we end up in this kind of place where it feels like we're just being badgered by or tormented by defilements, which we're aware of, but because there is insufficient understanding, not yet seeing things clear enough, they hound us. And so the Buddha recognized this and, and, and realized that mindfulness alone is not enough. We also need to develop wisdom so that we understand what it is we're seeing. And if we understand things correctly, as Saito Utejaniya says, it is wisdom that does the job of removing the defilements. Mindfulness can, can kind of tame them often, can, can tame them, kind of keep them under, from, from being acted out. But it can't put them aside for, for good. It's wisdom that does that. And so the third training of the uh, Noble Eightfold Path is the training in the development of wisdom. And this is insight practice, which is what we're doing here. So on this retreat, we're, we're practicing all three. The precepts to uh, get a handle on or to exercise some restraint on the transgressive defilements, developing mindfulness to get a handle on the obsessive defilements, and the development of wisdom through the practice of insight to begin to understand the latent defilements that are residing in the mind that have the potential to arise if we're not careful. Understanding the defilements, understanding their danger, that they arise, that they're visitors to mind, how can we best work with them in our practice? 
First of all, it's important to hear what you're hearing tonight. That defilements are dangerous. It's defilements that cause suffering. And this is the nature of the defilements. And these are the defilements. Some form of greed or attachment, aversion, and delusion. I don't want to overwhelm you, but <laughs> in uh, this book that I and, and some friends are translating and editing for publication from Mahasi Saido in Burma that I uh, read from the first evening, he says that there are more than a thousand variations of the main three. I've never been able to see all thousand of them. <laughs> but I've seen more than a dozen. So <laughs> the challenge for us is, even though we hear about them, even, we, even though we know the names of many of the defilements, self-pity, anger, frustration, disappointment, despair, attachment, irritation, impatience, we, we know it is really difficult to see them in our own mind because we're so used to them. And so the first challenge for us is to recognize them when they arise, is to be able to recognize them. And so Saito Utejaniya has a, an interesting uh, quote, and I'm going to have to paraphrase him here because I don't have it right in front of me. He says, most yogis uh, practice looking for good experience rather than being willing to work with the defilements. And his, he wrote a book, or his teachings are compiled in a book called Don't Look Down on the, at the Defilements. They will laugh at you. <laughs> if you take them lightly, they got you. That's what he's saying. And so his whole direction, if his instruction is keep looking for the defilements. They're there. Keep looking. Really be, be ready for them. You know, expect them because they do come. And so to, to, to become familiar with them uh, so that we can recognize them when, when they appear in the mind. Really important. Coming out of denial, out of avoidance, out of minimizing, out of some uh, kind of self-inflated grandiosity that thinks that, oh, I don't have any defilements, or they don't arise in me. And then, of course, being able to, to name them. You know, if you recognize that there's some uh, distress in the mind, well, what is the defilement? And, and then to name it. Because to name the defilement begins to take its power away. It begins to free the mind from uh, the enchantment. But many of us, when we see or recognize defilement in the mind, we get upset. It's like, I don't want to be angry. I don't want to be irritated. I don't want to be fearful. I don't want to be frustrated. I don't want to be depressed. I don't want to be, I don't want to be sleepy. And so we try to get rid of it. The second step in working with the defilements after recognizing them is to relax. <laughs> Just relax. Don't get all bent out of shape about it. Because relaxing is a way of acknowledging their presence accepting, oh, this is the way it is for now. Due to whatever conditions, this is the way it is. And so you're not just trying to push against it, but rather you're acknowledging <coughs> this is the way it is. 
I'll use the word accepting, but I don't mean accepting like, oh, this is good enough. I mean, it's accepting that this is the way it is before you can do, before you can work with them in a skillful way. You have to let yourself know that they're present. To just push against them, to try to get rid of them, is just another layer of aversion, compounding the difficulty of working with the original defilement, whatever it was. Again, Saito Tejaniya says, the mind is not yours, but you are responsible for it. What arises in the mind is due to causes and conditions far out of your reach. But whatever arises in the mind, you've got to take care of. You've you got to look after it, or it'll, it'll really make you miserable. And even if you do look after it, it's also a challenge. If we just struggle to get rid of the defilements, as I said, we're making the mind tense, the body tense, and adding a layer of aversion. Again, Utejaniya says, it's perfectly natural to become sleepy. If you feel bad about sleepiness, it means you have aversion towards it and you'll try to resist it. This is a wrong attitude. Simply recognize and accept sleepiness. As long as you observe sleepiness with the right attitude, you're meditating well enough. And we might say that about any of the defilements. They're a natural phenomena. They arise due to causes and conditions, lawfully. Who are we to? You know, we're not that omnipotent to be able to go, you, go. <laughs> That's not our role. And so to accept that they're, that they're there and to have the right attitude of working, being willing to work with them rather than just trying to nuke them. When I say that the defilements arise due to causes and conditions, I don't mean to be vague or mystical about this. One of the wrong, one of the conditions that gives rise to the defilements is wrong attention. We're not paying attention correctly. Of course, there's the force of habit, and there's the force of the current conditions as they are playing out. And those have something to do with it, too. But it is primarily because we're not paying attention correctly. And so when Sayadaw Tejaniya talks about right attitude, wrong attitude, he's talking about how you understand this experience. It's not a mistake that the defilements arise. It's lawful. So we recognize them. We relax around them. And then we exercise some restraint. Because to act out the defilements in any way only strengthens them. Now, when I say to not act out, it takes some careful thought, really. Defilement has risen in the mind. You recognize it. You see it. Now what are you going to do? There are a few things we can do to, to kind of tame it so that we're not kind of entangled in it. One is we can just, as I mentioned earlier, when you meet an overwhelming force like a defilement, 
back up, go pay attention to something else. You can replace that object that's causing or conditioning the defilement with something that doesn't condition a defilement. That's skillful. That's using your intelligence. You know, and insight practice requires intelligence. You have to think about how to practice skillfully, how to practice effectively with these states of mind. And not just go barreling through, just kind of, uh, kind of forcing your way. It doesn't work in Vipassana practice and insight practice. Another way of exercising some restraint is to, to, to do some reflection. You know, if the mind is filled with aversion, anger, irritation, or hatred, we can practice loving-kindness. We can practice metta towards that person, towards ourselves, to try to uh, kind of blunt the, the sharpness of the aversion, to kind of dampen it and to, to uh, soften the mind. Or if you're having, uh, if doubt has arisen, and as a defilement, and you're just kind of stuck in a paralysis where you just can't move forward with your practice because you don't know if you can or if it works or if it's valid or whatever. And sometimes you can just reflect on uh, some other dharma that you've heard or some, someone that you know who's practiced uh, and that you trust their practice. And you can, you can borrow someone else's confidence by reflection that allows you to continue practicing. Not to, addressing, not, not to address the doubt, but not to succumb to the doubt either. And you borrow that confidence and you can keep practicing. Or you can, if you're caught in a blame game, somebody's done something and you're really throwing darts at them with blame, you might reflect on forgiveness as a way of dampening the the sharpness of the blaming. But these are not, none of these are insight practice. These are all forms of replacement, uh, replacement therapy, if you will, or some kind of uh, cognitive reframing or, or, or working with the, uh, the antidotes to the defiled states of mind. So we exercise some restraint in not acting them out, calming the mind down a little bit. And then we reframe our understanding because so often, as I mentioned, I think, earlier this afternoon, when defilement arises in the mind, we think, oh, I can't practice till I get rid of this sleepiness. I can't practice till I get rid of this anger. I can't, ra- I can't, I can't continue until I get rid of this doubt, until I really feel confident that I'm, why I'm here and what I'm doing and that, that it works. And that's a wrong understanding. If we wait until we have no more doubt, we'll never practice. Because it is practice itself that overcomes doubt. It's practice itself that overcomes aversion. It's practice that overcomes all the forms of defilement. And so we want to reframe our understanding and acknowledge that, oh, defilement has arisen, relax, exercise some restraint, and then remind ourselves, this is the very place to develop awareness. It's the very hardest place to develop awareness. It's not going smoothly. It's really unpleasant. It's really a challenge. Your mind is really saying, no, 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 no. And your intention and aspiration is saying, yes, 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 yes. And it feels like a struggle. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? It feels like a struggle. 
But remind yourself, this is the very place. And what is it that you're supposed to be aware of? The defilement itself. That's the, that's the predominant object. When a defilement arises like that, that is the predominant object. Don't go back to the breath. That's avoidance. Recognize the defilement. Feel it. Open to it. Feel it. Notice how it feels in the body, the thoughts in the mind. Whatever it is that you can taste, whatever flavor of that, nature of that defilement you get, it contributes to your knowledge and understanding of that defilement. So we approach it with uh, an understanding that, oh, this is the place to learn about the nature of this defilement. And so then you can, you can engage it willingly, if not energetically, um, because it is understanding the defilement that uproots it from the mind. You're not going to outlast it. it. It just goes underground and waits till you're careless again, then it rises. Yes, the impetus or the stimulus for the defilement may pass away or may, may, may leave after a few minutes, but the memory of it is still in the mind. And it can come up anytime, you know, as we do. Old memories come up. And we relive old anger, old attachment, old fear, old self-pity. It just comes up willy-nilly. Even though it's not happening now, it happens in the mind, and it's as if it's happening now. So we exercise some restraint, and then reframe our understanding. As Saidar Utejaniya says, try to recognize that defilements are simply defilements. They are not your defilement. Every time you identify yourself with them or reject them, you're only increasing their strength. The wandering mind is not the problem. Your attitude that it should not be wandering, that's the problem. The object is not really important, but really how you observe or view it is important. Here it is. Yogis make the mistake of expecting or hoping for a good experience rather than being willing and trying to work with the defilements. So it's a real invitation here to accept the defilements arise, this is the work. If we work skillfully with them, the pleasant experiences will come. The ones that we all want, they'll come. But only if we're willing to work with the difficult ones too. So we recognize them, relax and accept them, exercise some restraint, reframe our understanding so that we're willing to work with them. And then we just pay attention to them. We be mindful of them. And in being mindful of them, we receive their, well, what's called their sabhava. We receive their unique flavor. All of the defilements have a different taste. They feel different, differently in the mind. They condition, condition different feelings in the body. So we want to kind of receive them, receive each defilement to, to know it, how it actually tastes in the mind, how it actually feels in the mind, how it actually feels in the body. Because in time, our recognition of the feeling will occur before the story of the defilement. And that's where we get a lot of relief. Because we can see it coming, we can feel it coming in the body. And we can 
head it off before we get entangled in a story and uh, all the justification for why we should be angry, etc., etc. Because you see it, you feel it, and you can recognize it right there and drop it. So awareness receives the nature of the defilement. It's helpful sometimes when observing the uh, any of the hindrances, hindrances or defilements to, to articulate it this way. Oh, this is the nature of anger. Not, this is my anger, or I'm so angry. I'm so depressed. Oh, this is the nature of depression. This is the nature of fear. Oh, this is the nature of whatever it is you're, you're experiencing. Anxiety, panic. Because when we put it in that generic language, it really helps us to see how impersonal it really is. It comes due to causes and conditions, as I mentioned, that are only tangentially related to us. And yet, when they appear, if we're not mindful, it feels like me, mine. And that's where the suffering is. So when we can put it in the If we can understand that it's a, a natural experience and that what we're observing is the nature of these defilements, it's helpful. Use the appearance of the defilements as an opportunity to investigate their nature. They are natural phenomena. They are not your defilement. Everyone experiences them, Utejaniya says. Think about that. It's not unique to you. Yes, the personal. The personal details of it may be unique to you. But, you know, when the sun shines, everyone gets hot. When XYZ conditions arise, everyone gets angry. It's just, that's how mechanical it is. And yet, if we don't see how mechanical cause-effect it is, we personalize it and miss the significance of these teachings. Then, as we're able to steady our attention, our awareness, on the manifestation of the defilements, and we recognize them, and we understand the nature of them, insight happens. We really start to see. And what we see about these defilements is that when you're not resisting them, and you're open to just feeling them, knowing them, looking them square in the face, they don't last very long. They don't last very long. Right now, they might seem to last for a long time, but it's the story about them that lasts a long time. If we can cut through the story, get to the actual experience itself, how long can you stay angry without the story? Not long. And that is where the freedom lies. When we can f be with the real experience, we see that they don't last very long. We see that they don't. We also see that all of the defilements are very unsatisfactory. Of course, we know aversion is unsatisfactory. But often we mistake and think, pride? What's wrong with pride? Or 
you know, uh, when we get um, attached to someone, we think, what's wrong with that? <coughs> well, until we feel what that actually feels like, the attached mind, or the proud mind, or the self-pitying mind, whatever it is, we won't understand how painful it is, how contracted the mind is. So we see that they're unsatisfactory, we see that they're fleeting, impermanent, and we see that they, well, they have very little to do with us. In order to understand the defilements, you have to watch them again and again. What can you gain from just having good, having or expecting good experiences anyway? If you understand the nature of the defilements, they'll dissolve. Once you're able to handle defilements, good experiences will naturally follow. Once you're able to handle the defilements, the spiritual goodies will naturally follow. So these are the challenges to uh, developing the momentum in our practice. Sometimes we call them the hindrances, the five hindrances. Sometimes we call them the defilements, the thousand defilements. <laughs> Take your pick. But they're all rooted in attachment, aversion, and delusion. So always look for any form of attachment or aversion in your mind. If there's any form of attachment or aversion in your mind, that's what you want to be paying attention to. What it is you're averse to or attached to, not so important. The fact of the aversion, the fact of the appearance of the attachment, that's the problem. That's what's causing the suffering. And so that becomes the predominant uh, object in our practice and then the object to be paying attention to. With all that you've heard about the defilements, you have begun to understand them correctly. This is important. It's important to hear what the right view is. When Sariputta, the right-hand um, monk of the Buddha, was asked, whoa, how is it that we come to right view? How is it that we get right view? He said there are two causes, two conditions for right view arising in the mind. And the first is paying attention skillfully. And the second is you have to have heard it from someone before. Now the Buddha was unique in that he could, he could discover right view by himself. But let's save ourselves the <laughs> lifetimes and uh, accept his view, if we will, or at least listen to it, so that when we practice having heard the right view, if we practice with skillful attention, we'll recognize right view when it appears. So thank you for listening to the Dharma. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash
donate.